0: Yes, hello. It's Jason Louvre. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. We've got a very special treat today. I am joined by the author Ian Cutler, who began his writing career focusing on the cynic school of philosophy, but moved on to write several books documenting his profound passion for tramping and tramps. That is the phenomenon of people throughout the 19th and early part of the 20th century who turned their back on society and decided to basically go feral, riding the rails and living lives of grand adventure and romance and danger and often misery, but most of all freedom from industrial society. Something that um, you've maybe thought about from time to time. I definitely have. Um, Sometimes it is tempting to just think about leaving it all behind. And well, we get to hear about the people who did exactly exactly that in this very interesting interview. And before we dive in, I, of course, want to share with you the latest on something that's got everyone very, very excited. That's our new tarot course at magic.me. You can find it at tarot.magic.me, T-A-R-O-T-M-A-G-I-C-K.me. It's taught by the world-renowned author and magician Lon Milo Dequette. It's a deep dive journey of transformation, that reveals the mysteries of the entire universe through the art of tarot. But don't just take my word for it. Let's hear from some of the students who have already taken the course because some great, great reviews are already starting to file in. People are diving straight into it and letting us know how excited they are. So Jim Horrocks, who's a longtime student, at the site says so much information. It's an amazing deep dive. My autistic brain is delightfully swimming in all the content. Well done. Thank you very much, Jim. Tanya Lee Wild also says, "I just signed up. So very excited for the adventure ahead. I absolutely cherish Lawn's books." And another student who goes by just the name Observing shares, "I started the course this week and it is nothing short of phenomenal. Not only does Lawn provide exceedingly powerful insight, But the humor and lightheartedness of his lecturing makes it very comfortable and approachable. Thank you very much, Jim Tanya Lee Wilde and Observing. And even Alan Moore, the author of Watchmen from Hell, V for Vendetta. Yes, that Alan Moore. He hasn't taken the course, but he does love Lon Duquette's work in general. And he did say at one point, again, not about this course, but about the teacher of this course to get the flavor of magic. You could do a lot worse than read a couple of the books by Lon Milo. Diquette. Well, this isn't just a book. This is a full immersive course that gives you everything you need to know to master the tarot, which is not just a deck of cards for divining the future, but the master, the true book of magic of the Western esoteric tradition. So join us for the Magic of Tarot course with Lon Milo Duquette. Again, you can find it at tarot.magic.me, T A R O T M A G I C K dot M E. All right, let's dive straight into our conversation with Ian Cutler. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourself and Hobos, your, your subject matter that you've spent so much time on.
1: Well, I, um, my first book was about, um, was about cynicism, you know, the um, ancient Greek philosophy and its legatees right up to the present day. Um, and it was like, it was kind of, so I, I, I kind of got interested in tramps and hobos via cynicism, the philosophy, and because uh, there's so many similarities and they're both outsiders. They both, you know, they both kind um, of challenge conformity and and um, the, 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 they they were like traveling they both didn't uh, neither of them believed that education was like um, you know the sort of formal education like schools and universities was the way adults should learn they believe people should experience things through their own senses and just being in the world and all the rest of it so um, I started so I I started the book, that book on cynicism. Um, well, that was two thousand and five, I think that one was published, and um, and then I got kind of, I got really interested in in modern day, or relatively modern day, because we're going so, back a hundred years. So,
0: so what? What maybe just define briefly what is the actual philosophy of cynicism? um because obviously people know the word but may not know the the greek philosophy just maybe just a paragraph worth so we can have that yeah, reference point it, when talking about well, hobos
1: yeah basically <clears throat> um it's it's more of an anti-philosophy than a philosophy <laughs> if anything um the the western civilization as i understand it started around the time socrates and the cynics and plato and aristotle they were all about at the same time. They all went to the same meetings and schools and what have you. And there was kind of like a battle for Socrates' inheritance in as much as um, the cynics... But he never wrote anything down, like, like Jesus, whether whether you believe Jesus is fictional or real or, or whatever. You know, I mean, it um, doesn't matter. That's, that's by the way. But, you know, um, so... Everything was, everything was interpreted by other people. And, um, and, and, and they just, they just were kind of, um, like I said, they believed in, they, they they led a very aesthetic lifestyle, like, like a lot of the tramps and hobos. They didn't, they believed that we were imprisoned by possessions and hmm. things like family and home and jobs, work, all that kind of thing just kept people kind of, they, you know um prisoners of their own in their own life and unable to I suppose be free experience the joys of nature and what have you and so that's that's the similarity
0: that's so interesting I mean um I don't know if this was was stoicism Greek or was that Roman later yeah
1: that was that was a yeah stoicism um kind of was came around the same time as cynicism but it, it, it was one of the Hellenistic philosophies. That's, so that's really interesting. Epicureanism, hedonism, cynicism, stoicism—they were all philosophies kind of based on um, people's experiences of their own of the world around them, rather than being taught by somebody who claimed to know better.
0: <laughs> Got it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, you 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 probably are aware. Stoicism has had a resurgence, particularly in America with the tech, like tech industry people love Stoicism sure. and Marcus yeah. Aurelius for some reason. Um, and it's become incredibly popular, I'm not exactly sure why, but um, cynicism is interesting to me. I haven't heard it defined that way. It sounds to me like uh, like uh, sadhus in India or something like that, or people who are just dropping well, out of society. it probably has a
1: basis, yeah, it probably has a basis in Buddhism because uh, the Buddha was around about a hundred years before, um, you know, the, the time of the cynics and, and Alec, Alexander, the greats, kind of wars and trips across to India and all the rest of it brought all that kind of information back. So, so basically, the the, the tenets of cynicism are very similar to that of Buddhism, which is if you don't have anything you're not going to miss anything so you that is so interesting you, down, you know
0: that's so interesting i mean i've I've been seeing more news articles that buddhism uh are kind of like the interplay between buddhism and, and ancient greece and that there have, there yes. have been buddha statues found in 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 greece which is just yeah. completely at least for me changes the model of what i was taught in school
1: yeah well a lot of formal academics they and and, and greek philosophers as well don't want um, don't want Buddhists or to, to claim any part of their Why? own history, their own philosophy. But in fact, a lot of those Hellenistic philosophies came from, you know, their contact with
0: with Buddhists. That's huge. People. That I mean, that right there changes my whole worldview. <clears throat> and it's like, I mean, it pretty, that kind of, in a way, invalidates this whole thing of Western versus Eastern civilization, if the yeah. the back and forth is that old. And also, you know, I kind of always been under the impression that the quote unquote Western civilization only started getting exposed to Eastern ideas, like in the, the 1700s or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. but in fact, there seems to be also evidence that, uh, whoever the historical Jesus person was that he was in contact with mahayana buddhism because the new yep. testament is basically mahayana buddhism uh, and yep. what you're saying now is blowing my mind i haven't heard that i only heard the thing about statues in greece but that's that's a massive mental shift for me even to think that buddhist philosophy was involved in ancient greece phlo- ancient greek philosophy and socrates and things like that that's huge
1: yes but not but not in terms of platonism and aristotelian you know those those philosophers are that philosophy which is based on first principles, you know, which is that there are basic truths in the world and you have to learn them and understand them and and teach them and pass them on to other people that but that has dominated Western civilization for the last 2,000 years that, and and that's basically the model that exists today. So the cynics, like the tramps, like if you like I, you know if there was such a if there was a historical Jesus, his philosophy, which is completely at odds with Christianity, I mean, you know, if you think about all these fat bishops in their purple robes and gold chains in their cathedral palaces. Yes. What the hell's that got to do with, you know, a rich man can't go to heaven and all the rest? Yeah, of it's it, got, got a
0: lot more to do with uh, St. Paul.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, there we are then. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so basically, that's how we got into the whole thing with the hobos and the tramps. Um, there is, a, you know, there are differences, there are subtle differences because um, the the people I, the, the 15 tramp writers that I discuss in my talk with Feral House, um, they're all people who, first of all, they, they wrote, they, they all wrote down the first-hand accounts of their own life and their own philosophies. That was one of the criteria. I wanted to get first-hand knowledge of how these people live. So all of them um wrote them but but they they were first and foremost they were Trump who wrote they weren't um people from the literary world who tramped, and there's a lot of folk there's a lot of folk like that you know um who share a similar similar uh, lifestyle and views to the people I wrote about the trumps I wrote about, but they were they were writers first and foremost. And a lot of them were fairly comfortable middle-class writers as well. You know, they had they had money and they had homes, permanent homes. Are, you,
0: are are you talking about like the beat writers or?
1: Oh, no. No, before that, like okay. Robert Louis Stevenson oh. and um, kind of people who were writing at the end of the, they, they, they were writing about the same time as the guys I wrote about, which is the late 1800s, early 1900s.
0: The only writer I was going to ask about that I know from this genre is Jack Black, who wrote You Can't Win, who I know because William Burroughs always wrote about him as his kind of primary first inspiration. Uh, Was he a, as you put it, a tramp who wrote?
1: Yes, he was a tramp who wrote rather than, a, it was, um, Emily Burbank was a writer who was a friend of um, Josiah Flint, who was one one of the other writers I write about. And um, she said, "You know, that's that was her like definition that he was the tramp writer, n- the tramp writer, not the literary man tramping." And that was, and that's the kind of criteria I used. And yes, he's very, yeah, he was very much in that mould, but he was probably also one of the few who was a professional criminal. Hmm. So, in 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 the lingo of the time, um, yeah, the hobo they, they described. I mean, guys like Jack Black were described as yeggs. They were like, um, they were tramps, they were, were hobos, but they, they, they had a criminal lifestyle. But he still had the same kind of philosophy about life. He had the same lifestyle. He lived that, he lived that simple kind of life where he didn't trap himself down with material things, although he, you know, and it was, the, the criminality was more of a lifestyle thing you know
0: got it so when you when you began to explore this subject matter what was it that you found i mean was the was it a clear through line from there from the cynic philosophy to hobos and tramps or like what was the world that you discovered and that compelled you so much to focus on it so much what was it that drew you in and what were the maybe tell us about some of these people and and their stories
1: yeah i mean well they most of them and 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 I've I've just written another book which I'm trying to get published at the moment because somebody said to me, asked me the question, well you've written a biography about all these guys, you've written about their adventures, their lives, but what was it that made them, you know, what what were the common factors, the kind of philosophical factors, and the the one is wanderlust, you know, that's one of the main things is that they they couldn't keep still, they were, had to be on the move all the time, and the actual momentum. Of walking and moving all the time um is what is what kind of kept them going kept them alive almost so they needed to move they be on the move all the time and um so that was one that was that's one aspect of it the other side of it is this whole thing about um education and not you know that formal education kind of almost like um they wanted to just learn for themselves and you know, discover for themselves. Um, so, um, so, so anyway, a lot about fifty percent of those guys, or more than fifty percent of the guys I wrote about, were were child tramps. They they left home, some as young as seven or eight, even it took to the road. Various reasons. Some of those were were from kind of comfortable middle class families, but hmm. they um, they just had this urge to just go, get away from their families, just be on the move. Um, so, it, you know, jumping trains and all the rest of it. Um, but what's, I suppose, what's interesting is that in America, there were some major factors that triggered the whole kind of like explosion in tramping and hoboism, which was the American Civil War. And when the Civil War ended, there were all these people who were used to marching, or you know, long, mm. war, not having a regular home, not having, you know, they they were used to that and they couldn't it found it very hard to settle settle back into normal society after the wars up then there were the three depressions in america in the 1880s 90s and and then later on in 1930s you know that created this um this need for people to to move around to look for to look for work hmm. um, so there were there were thousands of um, there were thousands of tramps out there wandering around and and also um you know what one of the factors all these guys have in common is their obsession with nature and their love of nature and being close to nature but they also they also like the cynics they they although they were um although they 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 were crazy about being you know their, their contact with nature they also like to spend time in cities and um Chicago had um it's it, the main hub was probably the main hub of hobo life around the turn of the
0: last century. Is that because it's and a it, transport hub?
1: They, because of the transport hub um because a lot of um there was a lot of movement around there was a lot of people who were working in the, in in forestry in um industry in working on farms or who, who, when they got paid off, they headed into Chicago to spend their money. And um, there's a piece. Um look Um Right. There's, um, yeah. Um, so, just a bit from um, the book I'm writing the moment. Uh, they, they created these urban centers of their own within America's largest. Chicago was its cultural capital and entertainment capital. At its peak, it estimated that there were 75,000 transients in Chicago's main stem, which centred for half a mile in every direction around West Madison Street. Um, It was a city within a city, including cheap saloons, restaurants, flophouses, whorehouses, gambling dens, clothing, cigar and drug stores, but also bookstores, theatres, missions, and meeting halls, which provided evidence that um, many of the tramps, you know, were were cultured as well as from labouring classes. It was a huge, it was a huge thing in in lots of the larger cities, but but Chicago, yeah, was the sort of centre of that activity. But the people I, were interest, I was interested in were not um, people who were hobos or tramps from necessity. They it was a it was a lifestyle choice. That that's the main difference about these guys who who wrote their own. Life stories and, and philosophies and adventures. It was a lifestyle choice to live in that way. That's that, was, and that's the link going back to the cynics. The whole idea of asceticism, um, of living a simplest life as possible, um, as opposed to the majority of hobos who, who were looking for work.
0: You know, interesting. So, so, of the um, of the hobos that you read about and studied what are maybe like the top one or two fascinating personalities or, or big stories that pop out at you of specific ones?
1: Okay. (laughs) Um, well you will have heard of Jack, Jack London. He's probably the most famous album and he, he kind of barely crept in because, but when he started out his life, when he was a teenager, he, um, he was an oyster pirate, you know, and he had his own sloop and he used to what
0: is an oyster pirate? It's like a poacher. Um it like,
1: yeah, sounds they, like
0: some type of they, euphemism, but uh
1: No, they were um well he, he worked in San Francisco Bay and uh, you know, he 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 just got oysters from I mean real I'm talking the, you know, real oysters and, okay. and selling them and um and pirating them off other off other folk, you know, but so when he was younger his his life was you know crazy life and there was a there's an episode where he's he's a young he's a really young guy and he's got his sloop and he's he's got a, he's got a shotgun in one hand and the tiller of the boat in the other and he's chasing down this um mature pirate and um and he wins the you know the other guy bottles out and um and then after that he did turn to to you know riding the rails um and uh, and there's some great story. There's a story um, between him and uh, uh, Leo Ray Livingstone, who's another who's another Trump writer. Uh, they met. Livingstone. Um, he had a he had a terrible um, uh, youth, you know, when he he was like um, in about thirteen, fourteen, when he took off. He just took off and he went all over South America on his own, working and 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 then he goes back there later and he meets another young guy, and they go together. They do a trip all the way through the Amazon. They go through, um, they go th- from um uh, the Amazon right the way through and. They 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 have they travel with pack with uh, ponies and um, sorry with, with burros at some point, and then they they swap them for canoes and they're going all the way down the river and and that's a quite an amazing amazing story. The, the other guy dies on the way from a snake bite, huh. and he barely makes it himself. But when he's older, he he puts an ad in the New York in one of the New York papers that he wanted a traveling companion to join him to go to do a coast to coast from the west. So uh, from the east to the west coast, and Jack London was like a teenager then. I think he was about eighteen, and he, he they they joined up, and um, that's before he wrote any of his books. But later on, Jack London does become um, a professional writer rather than You know, he's, his his tramping career was fairly brief compared to a lot of these guys. I mean, the person who suppose impressed me the most. Mm-hmm. Was the only woman in the book? Because and and it's not that there aren't w- women adventurers who've written their life stories, but um, Kathleen Phelan, uh was on the road for she was on the road for about seven, for seventy seven out of her ninety seven years. She lived to ninety seven. She met up with um, her, her, her her unmarried name was Newton, and she met up with Jim Jim Phelan, who was another tramp featured in the book. He's an Irish guy. And he they they met up in in North England and um they tramped together for like, 24 years or something. And then when he oh. died, she carried on tramping on her solo for a year, right up until she was yeah, right up into into her nineties, she was tramping. And she did a tramp all the way across um North Africa, from Morocco through Tunisia, all the way through to Egypt and then up into um um Turkey and she ended up in the Himalayas and then oh. all the way. so that was a three-year trip she, she did solo with a basket of wheels with a few possessions in it and that you know she's a, she she's an incredible character um and so was her husband um he was 24 years older than her um then um Jim Tully he he he's a he's a guy who he ended up working in Hollywood with um, Charlie Chaplin. He was Charlie Chaplin's um, writer uh, for for a while. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, he had a he had an amazing life. But he, but one of the things that the, all these guys got in common is that they they just don't take bullshit. You know, they they just say things like they are. They they don't follow the rules. They they everything's outside of the you know, and they just do, they just do whatever, um, you know, they do whatever takes their fancy, you know, um,
0: interesting. What, what would you say? So obviously this is the type of thing that I think most normal people fantasize about at one time or another in their life. Um, but usually they're held back. So, um, what are the question I have is what are the dangers that some of these people faced? I mean, the real ones, what, what were the downsides of doing this?
1: Well in terms of in terms of beating trains and a lot of them lost their lives, they lost limbs, you know, thousands of people running
0: guards. out for trains.
1: Yeah, running out for trains, um, being beaten by train guards, you know, um, the rest of it. Most of them did jail time. Most of the guys I wrote about did quite a lot of jail time. They got you know, they got beaten up by by people who are intolerant of their lifestyle. Um they that st- you know, they starve a lot of them, um, the, you know, some of them died of hunger, but not the guys I'm writing about, but a lot of those people, you know, they, well, they, yeah, so, the, it, it sounds romantic, the the lifestyle, but there was a terrible price to pay for some of these people, and, um, you know, one of the guys I write, write about, um, he was in the Rocky Mountains, and um, he, he, um, he just took out a gun and he was going to, you know, to contemplate shooting himself, he'd had a guts for, you know, they talk about the beauty of nature and that, but then they also talk about the harshness of it. So it's got, it's got the two sides to it. You know, there was a very harsh side to the lifestyle. Um, but there's a, there's a, as Catherine Phelan says, you know, the, 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 the joy of it, the pleasure of it, the freedom of it far outweighed all the, Bad things that happened along the way. So that
0: that was going to be my next question. I mean, what were the rewards, uh, other than the ones that you just said? I mean, clearly something was outweighing all that physical hardship. And was it just the sense of freedom uh, or nature?
1: Yeah, the sense of freedom, the kind of thrill of it, the excitement of who they meet, what would be around the next bend. That nothing was predictable.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, they could. I, I I guess. For these folk, they couldn't. They couldn't cope with their ordered life that is, that is um, you know, predictable. They wanted, you know, they just wanted to be out there and, and not know what was going to happen from one day to the next. They lived from just, you know, moment to moment. And you know, some of those moments were great, and some were not. But they, um, that was a. It was a. It was a. Philosophy as well, you know, it, um, that uh, they 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 didn't they didn't believe in. Um, well, it's it's like like with the cynics, um, Diogenes says about um, you don't owe anything to your parents, you know, that you were just an accident of birth, you know, and, and 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 so had no loyalty to family.
0: Then, nor did Jesus. If you, go yeah, I was back, just going to say it? that. I mean, Jesus says to follow me, you have to leave behind everything. And there, right. there's a lot of religious orders that say the same thing: yeah. Buddhist, Hindu. Um, there's a ton. So that definitely does seem to be its own initiation to do that. And most people never do that. I mean, um, and whether that's good or bad, who am I to say? But I mean, there definitely are people throughout every historical period and culture. I think who. Uh, just kind of take off
1: yeah yeah and and it was it is a compulsive thing with these guys it wasn't a choice i mean i the more i read about it and go into it i am convinced that it's um it's a genetic you know you're born a cynic you cannot uh, uh, and a and a a tramp you those people who choose that as a lifestyle choice um it's they have to be born with that it come it's it's not something they learn or you know it's just a compulsive thing and it's you know and the other thing is it's not um it's not like a religion or a, or or a political belief or any of those um kind of uh, um evangelical movements none of the, they 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 didn't try and persuade other people to adopt their lifestyle or do what they did it was just their own thing and they just did it and
0: yeah anybody else could i take your seat <laughs> right well uh, one thing i was i I that did occur to me, I'm always hesitant to, to, uh, to do this, but since you mentioned that it was kind of compulsive and genetic for them, I'm wondering if there's some actual di- maybe diagnosis there. I mean, even, uh, or, or it could potentially be related in, at least in some cases, I mean, just the thing you mentioned about constantly needing to be on the move, and not fitting in with the school system sounds like what would be diagnosed as attention deficit disorder now particularly the constantly needing to be on the move um yeah. and uh, I think a lot of young people with who are diagnosed with something like that uh you know would much be rather would much rather be running around in nature than in uh, a, yeah. a classroom probably rightfully so in many cases um I think it's probably got links
1: I, I wouldn't like to, but, but it's almost like there's a, it's almost like an autistic gene as well. Okay. You know, um, that they're very much individual. These people are all individuals. They yes. they kind of shared the same ideas and they shared the same lifestyle, but the thing that marks them out is they're just total individualism. You know, they were just not, um, they, they didn't belong to a tribe, although they identified with each other, But they didn't belong to a tribe or a religion or any group in society they and 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 like I said before they weren't evangelical they didn't try and persuade sure. other people either to join them they it was just a, a compulsive behavior that they um you know that they adopted
0: yeah that's so um, interesting i mean i'm, I'm always i never want to like play diagnostic i think it's kind of offensive in addition to the fact that i'm no type of trained medical professional but um it, I, I can't also can't help but see links and similarities um, it does sound maybe a bit like a autism spectrum potentially and so it's probably different things and mixes of things in every case but the thing about um not having any Sense of connection with other, like not, you know, being total individuals um mm. and the difficulty with traditional learning systems sounds like an autism spectrum thing. And yeah. of course, we know now with ASD, it's so much more complex and multivaried than what people thought even 10 years ago. Yeah. So it's a different well, in the for same every way, person. Like,
1: well, m- most autistic people don't necessarily identify with each other. They're all very much no. individualistic.
0: And they, people got- can be all, it's kind yeah. of like, um like a a music mixing board where the switches can be at different positions on all these different settings for each
1: person. I don't think there's any two autistic people the same, you know, that that I've met anyway. They just, they are very much one-off individuals. They struggle with conforming to, well, they don't identify with with, um, kind of mainstream society in the same way as the tramps or the cynics did. They don't, they don't recognize it. They don't acknowledge it as legitimate, even. Which is know. a
0: valid position, I think. It's like <laughs> yeah. that's a sane position on, on modern society, uh, well, at least it's in like, my way of it's
1: thinking. Like Nietzsche, it's like Nietzsche says. He says, um, you know, why conform to uh, rules that don't apply 200 miles away? You know, what? The, the, and, and that's the difference between the cynics and the. Mm. And, and Plato and Aristotle who believed in first principles of thing you know that um you know just be, just because something is it, something would be the law in well not just in one country I mean you know some countries um certain drugs are illegal in other countries alcohol is, is illegal you know and alcohol has massive impact on people's health and the cost of health services as well. But I mean, you just take the recent decision to overturn the abortion laws. And then in, in your country, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, um, is it, is it that one of one law is right? and is right? Or, or who's in power at the time? If yes. you have a conservative, yeah. you know, government in power, they will appoint conservative judges and they will break conservative laws. And it's, you know, it's, it's random and it's right. not,
0: It is. Yeah. I mean, in that case, it was actually the throwing out of a law instead of um, uh, creating a law. Yeah, Yeah, that was probably not particularly well argued in the first place. Uh, And it just reverts to us. It reverts to a state's rights things. It's not like abortion was made illegal, Um, but it certainly has been in a lot of states, Uh, for instance, Texas, where I live. So it's it's like basically the country said, well, we don't have a good enough constitutional argument to take a federal position on it. It goes back to the states and each state decided to make a clear position on it. So if you live in a conservative state, Which yeah. is even
1: worse in a way because yeah. universal rights, you know. It
0: is. <laughs> yeah. And the whole point of the constitution is that there should be universal protections and rights. Um, yeah. anyways, that's a bit of a, a side issue but um yeah i mean i but think it, that... it,
1: but it does identify the one of the issues in terms of um hoboism and tramping it, which is that um these folk did not rec they do not recognize national boundaries they do not recognize national laws you know cultural um imperatives you know they to, that was of no importance whatsoever you know they just thought it was anti-human almost
0: you know, yeah well it is i mean it's like i think one of the things about um often asd people as well is uh in many cases it's like if you tell them something and it doesn't make any sense and it's just an arbitrary thing just the the mental frustration is like no this doesn't make any sense i'm not complying with this hmm. because it's not hmm. logical <laughs> so yeah.
1: but a lot of people but the majority of people do comply yeah. because they live in fear of the consequences of not complying. It's more comfortable it, to comply. Sometimes, you know, um, because if you put yourself into the margins, or you're um, vulnerable. You then forego certain safe, you know, certain securities and things that the rest of us do when we buy insurance and we do all that stuff. We have a mortgage, and yeah, it kind of like we think we're creating a secure environment for ourselves, but actually we we just become prisoners to big business most of the time in terms yeah.
0: of, yeah, you know, Well, I mean, it's kind of like pick your, pick your poison, you know, it's like, do you want to yeah. live exposed or, you know, do you want to buy into the lie and have at least some security? Mm-hmm. And, um, I do think it is like that though. I mean, my, in my long lifelong ponderings of why people are the way they are. I mean, the majority of people at any time will simply just agree and comply with what the majority of people are saying because it's like a school of fish, you know, mm. or, or a group of deer. It's like as soon as you stray, well, predators are going to get you. And if, you know, if you're a school of fish and a shark shows up, even if it starts eating fish, statistically, you're, you're less likely to, to be eaten. And so I don't think that the majority of people have thought through anything from first principles or any other philosophy, or even a political philosophy, they simply comply with what people around them are doing for herd safety. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a valid evolutionary strategy, but it's like, you know, for certain people that just does not work. It's like, they, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. Mm-hmm. Um, the hypocrisies are apparent, the, um, you know, the, uh, body count of a society may be apparent, uh the evil that it does. And I think it's been a it's a universal desire for some people just to wash your hands of it and walk away.
1: Mm. But even all those even all the cultural norms and differences between different um states, um, you know, governments is is like in conflict with with multinational business, which is actually, you know, the predominant factor in terms of Way we live our lives today—it's not about local politics or national politics, or even international politics. It's about—it's about Amazon and um, and all the other yeah. multinational corporations. They're the ones that are controlling our lives, controlling the media. You know. Um,
0: yeah, I think we're in a transitional phase away from the. I mean, this is a non-controversial argument, but we're 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 in a tr- tr- transitional phase from the nation state to, uh, you know, multinational or global, global corporate mm-hmm. power. I think that's just not incontrovertible. Uh, I don't yeah. necessarily think it's even a bad thing. It's just another part of the process of the, you know, human history. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, so back to the tramps. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, the other book, the other book I wrote with published publisher Feral House was Jim Christie, uh, what happened was when I was researching for Kathleen Phelan um, I, some relatives of um, her husband Jim Phelan put me in touch with Jim Christie as somebody who met Kathleen in the 70s on a boat from Spain to Morocco and they trapped together for a, for a few weeks and then parted company and went on their ways again and um, so I got in touch with him to find out about Kathleen but The more I spoke to Jim, I realized he had his own story to tell and, um, you know, had to prize it out of him, but he had an amazing, incredible story. What was that? Well, he, he started off in, um, he lived in South Philadelphia and, um, in a mafia family, um, and all his relatives, you know, they were all involved in whatever the mafia were doing down there. And, um. He he went. He was go. He was going along with it for a while. He you know he was in that part of that culture, but he also it, you know even at that point he was wandering off into the black neighbourhood and hanging around with those guys and just doing his own thing. He you know he and then something happened with his family and he had to, they had to move out to the suburbs and, and were given um were given a false identity and everything. So I don't know what whether that was to do with the police whether it was to do with the mafia themselves that they moved out into the suburbs and um he 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 was oh, he was always um he, he was always off tramping himself uh, he, you know he had the wanderlust thing and he, he when he was um 12, 11 12 he hitchhiked from Philadelphia up to the Canadian border mm. and met up with with um some a guy who was a ex-Russian count who was a who was tramping in the opposite direction, and they hung out together for a he bit. He was an
0: ex-Russian count. What was the story there?
1: Well, he well he when after the revolution, you know, his family, um, you know, all their, their their property was taken away, and the, so oh, he oh, became, oh yeah, he had to escape to get away from all that. But he met up with somebody later on in Canada, who was his. Who was um, had been a servant of the family, and they they got, you know, they got on fine. And uh, but he 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 just tramped. He was just tramping around. And he he Jim he carried on tramping and did, he travelled all over the world in the end. But he um, he had multiple multiple um, occupations. And you know he he, he did he was um, a pugilist for a while. He did box, but. Half of the guys I wrote about were were into that game as well, um, and did prize, prize fighting as a way of earning a bit of money when they were down and out. Um, Jim became very politicised, and then when the um, Vietnam War was on, he, you know, he he was on the parade ground, and he just refused to, he just ignored all the orders, and and um, you know, <laughs> he got he managed to escape to Canada in the end, along with lots of. Thousands of other Americans, and he he um, when he was in Canada, he his first book was about all the was a collection of stories of all the guys, a lot of the guys he knew who'd you know who'd escaped the Vietnam War.
0: That's uh, really interesting. Um, um, I mean, it's like if you just look back through history, let's just say the 20th century, it, it is pretty clear to me that like the only unassailable moral, not only but. You know, in most cases, the unassailable moral position in hindsight is almost always to just take off on your own and be completely removed from the situation. Yep. For instance, uh, you know, Germany in the 30s and 40s, it's like the unassailable moral position there would have been just to take off and mm-hmm. be a be a, a tramp. And, and then also I was, you know, at a certain point I was doing a, a ton of research on genocide and... There's this thing, uh, this is just a, a short diversion, and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll digress, but they, obviously, everyone has this idea that if they were in Germany in the 30s or 40s, well, I wouldn't have complied. I wouldn't have been one of the people who did. Well, chances are, yes, you would have, and the only mm-hmm. people historically that actually um, sheltered Jews or resisted the Nazi state were hobos or people who were already out of society who were living off in yeah. the woods uh, yeah. and had already just uh, had already disconnected from the society everybody else complied that's very interesting yeah, well,
1: to me that was my own, my own background my my mother came over on the Kindertransport transport from vienna mm. um in the in the 40s and um met my father my father's english guy from from a rural, from a farming community, they met up, and, um, and yeah, then and I was born in
0: 1948. Oh my God! Okay, wow! All right, so uh, I'm 75. Okay. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, my my wife wrote a book about she. My wife is a is a writer, and she um, she m- m- met up with um an American, Franco American writer Raymond Federman. I don't know if you've come across him. No. Look him up. Great guy. He's definitely a cynic. Okay, uh, he passed away now, and he he escaped the uh, Holocaust. His family were he was born in Paris, and his family were his his mother and his father and his two sisters were taken to Auschwitz and killed. His mother shoved him into a closet in in their apartment before they were rounded up, and he managed to get away. Went to went to the south of France, to the Vichy area, and worked on a farm for a bit, Then he was. 14, he came back and eventually ended up in America and all his life he was trying to make sense of what happened to him but his thing was um was he, laughter sure he calls it he just ridicules everything you know and um and 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 Angela my wife she wrote a book um the back the backbone of the book was a lot of emails between them they're talking about different aspects of the Holocaust you know but but it's got a it's got an absurd side to it and a funny side to it as well you know and they talk about Auschwitz Barbie and Auschwitz Lego and all this kind of stuff you know what all what, did,
0: what did that mean
1: well it's like the legacy of Auschwitz today you know what's it mean Ange- angela's thing was the um was the the concentration camps and, and we visited a few, you know, and it's like, what are they, what are they there? What do they represent? What, what do people expect to find when they go there? And and what's it mean? So she did a book, it's called Auschwitz. And um, it's all about Holocaust tourism, really, Hmm. you know, and how we make sense of it, or we don't make sense of it, how we can't make sense of it and how it's still difficult to talk about um, without being sentimental because there are still people, there are still people alive today who are part of that, you know, part of the Holocaust, um, but anyway, that's, uh, it's just because you mentioned Nazi Germany, uh, um, so I got a bit of a background there.
0: I see. As well. Yeah. I mean, that, that recontextualizes things in terms of cynicism or tramping. I mean, um, particularly in time periods like that, uh, you know, I, I'm. History is usually bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, society is usually bad, particularly then.
1: We're living in we're living in history now, aren't we? I mean, yeah,
0: and it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: bad, it's pretty bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess I mean maybe an argument, like a actually a deeply moral argument, could be made there, for mm-hmm. tramping or or whatever you want to call it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, but I don't think today it's a lifestyle choice anymore. You know, it was possible in the days when these guys did what they did and wrote about it to have that kind of lifestyle, but since the 1960s onwards really, I mean um, um, Jack Jack Kerouac wrote about it in The "The Vanishing American Hobo, and he talks about well, you can't even be alone in the um, primitive wilderness anymore because police helicopters will find you and you know, and we—it's—it's it's really hard to stay under the radar these days. Much harder than it was, and people are much—people are more intolerant as well. I mean, how, how so? You know, it was almost like accepted that people—you know—the tramping lifestyle has been accepted for centuries. But in the last, well, sixty, seventy years, it's kind of there's lots of homeless people, but they're not tramps. They're homeless because of the, you know, our circumstances. Um, very few people, I imagine, would choose tramping as a lifestyle today in the same way as those guys did when it was possible to do it. And there was all, there were, there was like unwritten codes that you could live by as a tramp that um, don't exist anymore, you know.
0: <laughs> so what was it that changed? Just more development, more people, more surveillance? Well,
1: survey, surveillance and CCTV and, um, you know anti-vagrancy laws and you know um if you get caught without a vagrancy change said so it's kerouac you get locked up in the calibus you know um
0: did they still do that thing in london i remember seeing several years ago not not several but a few years ago they were starting to um put metal spikes on uh areas where people would be vagrant and sit on so oh, you well, you, you couldn't even sit in public
1: no, no, no. And then, the, you know, there's CCTV, you can be followed around. city. So you can't, you, you're visible all the time. I mean, Britain's, I think, got one of the worst rates of CCTV cameras everywhere.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. London's the most surveilled uh, city on the planet. There's literally yeah. nowhere you can yeah. be that you're not on camera, which is terrifying.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the level of ignorance and intolerance around that kind of lifestyle, you know, there must be something wrong. You must be a drug addict. You must be some kind of criminal. You must be, you know, the the cops will just harass you to death. And um, so it's not, it's not really an option anymore.
0: Um, I wonder if there are places in in the... I wonder if there are places in the world where it may still be an option. I mean, I just know, for instance, in the sixties, so many people went on the hippie trail in India. And I know, I know people who went that from, you know, India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, all the way to England. Um, and I wonder if maybe that that is still possible in, in some places or more possible. Um, I don't know.
1: Well, not if you're no. And I think it's disrespectful as well. The, you know, there's something about, and I've seen mm. it myself. There's something about um, white American and Europeans, particularly in third world countries, bumming around and begging. It just seems incongruous. There's something <laughs> I can't, I can't quite okay. get my head around that. You know, but it, it goes on. You know, and in Spain and places like that, it, you know, the idea of Westerners tramping in, you know, other parts of the world that are, you know, are, worse off economically than ourselves is something I I just don't get, I don't get that one at all really. I mean, maybe we should, yeah, you should be able to, you should be able to go where you want, but it's almost like disrespectful to those folk um, because we come from a, well, we come from a society where we are relatively better off financially and all the rest of it. And so, it just doesn't seem right, I guess. But maybe that's my own prejudice.
0: <laughs> it may um, have changed over time too. I mean, uh, it's funny when I was when I was in India in the early two thousands. I was talking to um, I was talking to somebody, and they were saying, you know, it's like in the sixties and seventies, all the white people came over here and did drugs. Now they come here and sit in the internet cafes. So I think even at that point, that culture was was pretty much done. I think it was more of a sixties thing. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the broad point, though, is this is such an interesting topic to focus on to just to look at how much freedom has been lost uh, mm-hmm. over the last several decades, you know, how controlled things really are compared to um, even a few decades back. And it's, you know, it's like millennials and younger have been raised in completely digital, controlled, air conditioned, air conditioned, mm-hmm. surveilled realities and and they're. Yeah. You know, and it's they're different. They're a different kind of person for the most part. Uh, they're domesticated, mm-hmm. and um, they're. I think as you're talking about, as as you're writing about, I mean, there are times in in American history where people were not domesticated, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. even not necessarily tramps, but I mean, like they were manual laboring. They lived a different type of life. Oh, completely. Kids grew completely. up differently, playing in the street and that type of thing. Yeah.
1: Well, you can't walk down the street now that everybody's on their mobile phones, you know, it's like everybody's, or well, they're on social media or that, you know, it's like, it's, it's so different, so alien. I mean, our kids laugh at us because we, you know, don't buy into all that. Well, they don't particularly. They're not, they're not involved in social media that much, but, um, we're, I suppose we, we show our age now. Um, well, because people, people have stopped communicating people don't meet up in face to face even you know
0: it's terrible you
1: know, they 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 find their partners on dating sites the everything's everything's online the whole the whole um uh instagram thing and um well all those all those all those social media sites are just like I don't know what it's it's is that living I don't know I Uh,
0: guess no I don't think so (laughs) I don't think so
1: (laughs) there's something very alien about it you know if you're um yeah so I don't know we are a different generation um and 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 those people I wrote about were a different generation from my generation you know very different and that's that's the (laughs) well it's either progress or or the opposite depending on which way you want to look at
0: it. Right. But, uh, what were the biggest differences in when you say in that generation I'm assuming you're talking about late 1800s 1890s what were the big di- cultural differences between then and your generation?
1: Um well I think on one level um there was probably there was less security in terms of you know I mean people people had to literally fight for their lives. I mean
0: um, when you say security, do you mean um, uh, war or, or well, food? Well, everything's
1: covered now by, you know, most people have a, most people have a, I mean, once, you know, we were all nomadic, you know, and, and people didn't live in settled communities. Now everybody lives in settled communities. You know, they live in houses. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, they live in, in communities, but but are they communities, you know? What sort of relationship do people have with each other where they live, don't even know their neighbors? Yeah. Like, like So so in those days, I guess, on the one hand, you had real communities where people lived with, with and near their parents uh, or family, you know, and, and they knew the folk who lived around them. They could relate to them, or as the tramps did, you know, they rejected all that and took off and did their own thing, created their own life. But now, we do we live in communities? I, I don't. I don't know if we do. We there's some virtual communities out there, like the one you've created here. You know, there are virtual communities, but physical communities. I, I don't know. I think that's the biggest difference, in a yeah. way.
0: I think that podcasting is very a very unique medium because it, although it is digital, it does have the sense of community, you know. It's face like, to
1: face. Yeah. Human to human.
0: You, you and I are talking face to face, even if it's on Zoom and, you know, probably yeah. five, six thousand people are going to listen to this and they're going to feel like they themselves are sitting listening to us talk. And Mm -hmm. it is a community of people that listen to the show and I have a sense of who they are and they they write in and and it's a wonderful thing. And that really is a silver lining of the social media age, I think is this format, which is why I do it, which is it has brought back long form conversation, which people didn't even do, you know, Mm -hmm. prior to the internet, you know, not in the Mm -hmm. same way, maybe, uh, in, in some cases, maybe at a bar, but, uh, Probably not. They probably yeah. weren't that focused on a subject matter, you know. At the bar, <laughs> so it was different as well.
1: Yeah. yeah, there's so much. I don't know superficiality now, but then that's just me. Maybe that's my own prejudice. But everything seems so superficial to me these days. And politicians are less and less. You know, there was a time when I was younger. My parents were quite political. They were quite socialist as well, and. um and people seem to people did seem to care about shit in those days, mm. and 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 really fight for certain things and make things better. But today, you do I, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust any politician. They they're a breed to themselves, and um, and everything. And I don't trust the medical profession. I think there's probably just as much, just as many people die from from doctor-induced intervention has died from disease, you know? Yeah. Or, or lack of intervention because because the other thing is it's 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 getting harder and harder to actually get services, certainly in this country at the moment. Social care. Um, my wife's parents both got dementia, and we're trying to desperately get them support. But we live like an hour and over an hour's drive away. We're relying on people going in to provide them with care, but those people aren't—you know—they're not doing it because it's a, it, you know, something they want to do. It's they're doing it because it's the only job they can get, and they're not very good at it. Right. And so you know, it's—it's ah, it's, oh, I don't know, but um.
0: yeah, this is the very grim side of modern life. And I, you know, in the U.S., uh, uh, we don't have like um, a national health service, but uh, if you do have to get care, you can end up. Uh, destitute, just because you needed yeah. medical care easily, it's so expensive here, um, and the medical industry is so so corrupt in that way. It's one of the hugest issues with with uh, with, with this country. Um, but no, I I do think that people are more superficial. I think they're superficial largely because they're afraid. I think that fear largely started in nine eleven, but then became the fear of. Oh, somebody's going to say, you know, attack me online. My words are going to be taken uh, out of context and politicians now, I don't, you know, they don't, they're looking at focus groups and data and gathering and things like this. And they're making, you know, they're doing guesswork of what they think people want and pandering to that. And, um, it, well, that's
1: it's going depressing back to the whole thing, the sort of cynicism versus the, um, what is the status quo, which is kind of you know, Platonism, Aristotelianism, that kind of you know that like the medical profession um is is I mean most doctors in this country just pimps for the drug
0: companies. Yeah, here too.
1: I'm, you know, and people have to struggle to go. People have to if people want to I mean like most things can be sorted the most a lot of health problems can be sorted out by if you're on the right diet you have the right lifestyle all those but they never talk to you about that stuff they just write a prescription for something that actually has got lots of side effects um my wife and myself are both nurses in the distant part so we've seen both sides of it you know um and when I retired as a director of adult social services 11 12 years ago now and um, Things have changed, even in that short time, things have changed so much. How so? Well, mostly now, the statutory services um, put most of their effort into avoiding giving people services rather than providing services.
0: Oh, what do you mean by they, that? That's uh...
1: Well, you, uh, you have to go through all these hoops to get, you know, and, and most people just give up. You know, that if, if, if you want to make a complaint these days, you have to go through layers and layers and layers of, of processes. Um, follow all these rules and things you have, fill in all these forms. And if you've got the stamina to continue with it, it's a miracle. You know, everything is designed to wear people down Um, because more and more people are complaining and are not satisfied with the kind of services, you know, we're provided with. Now, the latest thing is the water boards in this country were all privatized. So, you know, water, which should be a basic, it's a basic need and a basic necessity. Um they are saying they're going to have to spend, I don't know, 10 billion or something on re- rebuilding all the sewers and everything. But they're going to they they're going to do it by putting by putting up water bills oh, um, right. when they should have been doing it for the last few decades and instead of which shareholders are just taking, you know, just making money out of it. Oh, I mean it's like every pub, every part of the public sector is like that. And I suppose those are the kind of things in a way that being a tramp or a hobo, you, you just got away from, you couldn't tolerate that kind of thing. Um, although it's not, it's worse now than it was, than it certainly was then in some ways. Yeah. Uh, And that's the kind of thing I suppose people chose to escape from. So I'm really, yeah,
0: it's, it can be tempting. So I, um, uh, I'm curious, like, what are some of the, of those who did choose this of the tramps that you studied, what are some of the kind of the craziest stories that you read or some of the most outstanding things in your memory of, of events or adventures that, that some of these people had or dangerous moments, like kind of cinematic moments?
1: Yeah. Well, um, well, like I said, Kath, Kathleen's trip, three year trip on her own with a basket on wheels. Um, was was incredible for for a woman well not even a western guy would do that trip nowadays it'd be impossible. She spoke about thirteen languages she you know picked up throughout her her life and she just she's an incredible character she got by I so she got by but she talked about being in America as well she was there for some years and talks about um being kicked off the subway. Um, seated in the subways and stuff like that you know she was treated worse in the us than she was when she was traveling across uh, across Africa and places like that <laughs> yeah um right oh I, I just so many I, I I would just say if you're interested read the book okay. I'm a much better writer than I'm a speaker and I, and <laughs> it's like the stories are um the stories just speak for themselves um but like Leah Ray Livingston's trip across um, Central and South America—just incredible. Um, Jim's Jim's stories are just incredible, you know. Um, oh, it's like it's—it's it's like there's so many stories. It's where do where do you even start? Um,
0: or maybe any um, that just happened to float to mind.
1: Um, I'm just trying to
0: think. Of. Okay.
1: Um, yeah. Um, um well um Morley Roberts uh he 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 came over on a he came over on a sh- on a ship from the UK to uh to um America and um he was just a kid at the time and um and he was being treated really rough badly by uh you know by the um by the regular crew on on the ship and at one point he was down on the ground and this guy, the older sailor was just kicking him, you know, and he waited for, he just waited his moment. He waited to recover from um, seasickness and all the rest of it. And then when he did, he got his own back. He, you know, he, he, he just waited his moment. And then he, he just floored the guy, you know, and, um, and he carried on um, doing price fighting and stuff. When he got, when he got over to America, there's a guy Tom Cromer, and he's probably one of the few guys who who probably was partly forced into tramping through through circumstances rather than choice and um you know he talks about being so hungry that he you know he talks about planning to uh, mug people to you know get their wallets off them and and he talks about standing outside restaurants watching people just really not enjoying a meal, you know, having, having all this food and just like really not even taking much any notice of it. And he's like, hadn't eaten for days, you know, and he was starving to death. And at some point he, he, um, he, 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 he agrees to sex to, you know, have sex with, um, with some other guys who just, just for money, you know, hmm. he's, he's got, he got so desperate i mean some of them did get that desperate a lot of the younger guys um they they um they got in with, involved with older trumps this Josiah Flint is one of the few who actually wrote about that side of it the exploitation between older Trumps and and like some of the young kids and um and that, but that's not isn't there's That's, a there's
0: a song about that Big Rock Candy Mountain? I think was originally about that
1: of yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: pedophilic older tramps. I think if I'm correct in that.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of them were. Some of them had great relationships with older tramps. Some of them were exploited either, either sexually or, or or or, or they got them to um, involve them in you know criminality and stuff to get money. But the few, but the guys, and, and some of the guys that I wrote about had been through that, but they, um, they, um, you know, they overcame that. They, they survived, you know, they, they were real survivors, some of these guys.
0: One thing I did want to ask you about is the hobo symbols. Like yeah. the kind of symbols, that they had their whole own almost occult symbolic language of, of if I'm remembering correctly, of, of kind of symbols drawn on fences. And I always remember being very um, kind of mystified and impressed by that whenever I heard about it. Uh, is that something that you looked into?
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's some illustrations of the symbols in the book. Um, obviously, the, the American ones are different from the English ones or British ones, but they, 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 they vary. but. Um, most often, they were um, in in Britain. They used to leave all these warning signs when other tramps would approach villages to say, "Well, this is a this is a good place, is a bad place. Don't go here, or whatever," or, or indicating um, where they should go, where they shouldn't go. In 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 the US, it was mainly on the on the railway lines and on the big uh, on the wooden water towers. You know, they they leave symbols to say who they were, where they, where they were going, what direction they were going in. So people could they could sometimes link up with each other or follow each other. Um it's a bit like tagging today, I suppose, mm. in a way. It's like an early version of that. But yeah, they had they had recognizable symbols. They were very simple designs, you know, but they 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 knew what they were.
0: Is there any rec- is there any record of how that got started?
1: Um well like anything else i suppose you know it just you know somebody starts somebody starts doing it passes it you know people just learn from each other Hmm. you know there's no it was just done from necessity i guess and then it developed into a code that that was recognizable across the country um
0: it's so interesting and
1: they also had their own they also had their own language for things as well you know i mean they had like well like with criminals you know they have their own um their own codes and their own language. Yeah, that so that
0: things. is that is super interesting too. I mean, I know that for a long time, um, gay people in England had their own language, the Polare. Yeah, <clears throat> which I don't know if there's any any uh, survival of that now. I know a lot of those words have just entered common common speech. Um, but mm-hmm. that, that has always fascinated me. I mean, just the whole idea of not even just subcultures, but what is even more interesting to me is paracultures, like cultures that are their own world that is not existing as part of or in reaction to the mainstream culture, but is just happening yeah. at the same time under the radar. And this, oh, yeah, I think, yeah. is an, an example of that. And, and when it gets to the point where they have their own symbols and language, I mean, this is just fascinating to me.
1: Well, like the Cockney rhyming slang in London, you know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the question I want to kind of start to come to a close on here is, does this culture, sur- are there survivals of this today? I mean, obviously we've been talking about how hard it is, but there must be something like this today.
1: Um, I, I don't think so. I don't think...
0: Really? I really don't even because there's su- there's such a homelessness epidemic everywhere that it- yeah, but that's that's
1: because that's not through choice. That's through you know just necessity. People, right. people are homeless. Not not I, there are there are few people. They are people. You know the people. You know, and the people who've got money obviously can get camper vans. You know, and and travel and do stuff. That, Stuff like that. There's, you know, there's whole groups of people, aren't there, in, in in the states who live in camper vans and meet up and all the rest of it. Um, but but the, and, and there are still people who jump who who beat trains now, you know. Um, but there's so few and far between. It's like it's not a cultural phenomena in the way it was back in those days. Certainly not. Um, I don't know people. Um, I'm trying to think what the equivalent would be now, nowadays, Um, I don't think there is because I don't think people are able to go under the radar in the way those guys did.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a dark point to come out of this podcast, but it, it, or maybe it's not dark because it, you know, it points at a problem that should be solved. I mean, I I think that the lack of anonymity for people is extremely psychologically bad. Uh, mm. For a lot of reasons, there you need to be anonymous. At, at least at times, there need to be some places you can go where the whole world's not watching. Um, mm. But uh, I don't know. Maybe there's uh, examples of other things that people do that you've seen now to kind of maybe if they're not riding the rails, but there's they're they're getting out from under the thumb of the, the thumb of the system other ways. I don't know. Well,
1: I think people are do- people are doing it online. You know, people are, people are. Um, expressing themselves but i mean one of the great things about the internet is that um people are able to communicate with other people so much more easily and 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 you don't need to you don't need to be published anymore either you know i mean everybody's it's probably more writers out there now and there are readers i think people have a really short attention span for reading yeah, yeah people days.
0: can't read anymore it's
1: another no, they just thing. like this quick sound bites and images and you know that that that's a sad thing in a way, but you know, but it's true. And um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, when the, the, all the places I the trouble, the places I travelled to, and it's this it's a need for the exotic, you know. Um, um, Trader Horn had it. He's he's one of the guys in the book. Trader Horn was a British guy who, when he was in his teens. He went to Central America and um, worked for a, a company that traded in ivory and rubber and all the rest of it. And, and he just, he ended up, he ended up as a tramp in South Africa and was discovered, I, I don't think, the, his, his, his life's been made into movies as well.
0: What movie was that? Um,
1: he, he, he was, he ended up, living rough in Johannesburg and just going around houses selling kitchenware and stuff like that Uh, he would have probably just died but he, he he ended up at this woman's house and who happened to have the same interest in viking history as him and they got chatting and he started telling her his stories and then in the end they you know she her and her husband wrote it all up he published three books then in the end and he's got a very idiosyncratic way of to tell in his stories but they're just phenomenal and um he um he partly fictionalizes a lot of a, a lot of the, a lot of these guys as well they do and and the same goes the cynics there's a whole kind of literary um tradition that is um the the, the, the the fact and fiction just gets completely blurred and they deliberately lay all these you know, perhaps and, and scenarios where you are you're guessing you know but they don't care you know and he didn't mm. he had this story about he made a story about this woman this um white goddess who gets who get captured by this tribe in the Goey river and um and and how he he has to rescue her from from uh, it's, it's all a bit like um rider haggard kind of stuff yeah. you know but but it's all based on fact. And, and the thing is that a lot of these stories, the fact, when you get the, to the facts, they're more fantastic than the fiction quite often. Yeah. They're just so bizarre. Some of the, some of the things these guys did. Um, yeah. He, he's a real character. Um, but, but I, when I was younger, I, I had this need to, this is need for the exotic, for difference, for things that feel different from what you're used to. And going for things that are, you know, kind of exotic. Yeah, is the word, the word. And I, I went to Africa when I was. I went to Africa for a couple of years when I was nineteen. I was there close to twenty-one. And um, and um, when I came back, I, I I was never the same. I could never settle because the culture shock wasn't going there. The culture shock was coming back. Yeah. to Britain after being there, and, and that thing. And I, I worked in Honduras and. In, in Latin America, in various places, but but I've always been in places where I stand out. You know, like the thing about these, both the tramps and hobos—they are part of. It. They did what they did in their own communities, and you know, didn't didn't necessarily stand out um, differently. And a lot of people who do travel now. They tend to go to places where, you know, you do stand out because you obviously, because you just look, different. people immediately recognize you're not, hmm. you're not a local, you know, and um, that kind of, that, that takes some of the, that takes some of the pleasure out of it as well, because you can't just merge and right like, be, be part of the culture. You, you're always going to be an outsider.
0: God, Good. well, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for talking to me. Let's. Um, I want to wrap up. Please tell people <clears throat> where about your two books and and your other books and where they can get them, or okay. or where, th- well, where they can find out more about you.
1: Okay. Um, well, there's. Um, yeah, there's. Some, there's a profile of. I've got a profile on Amazon. <laughs> So on Amazon Books, you know, so that people can look that one up under the book. So the books are, um, the first book I published was um, Cynicism from Diogenes to Dilbert. And that's published by Macfarlane Press in the US. And then the last two books are published by Feral House is Jim Christie, A Vagabond Life. And then the second book is, it's, it's got a hell of a long title. It's, it's the um the Lives and Extraordinary Adventures of Fifteen Trump Writers from the Golden Age of Vagabondage. <laughs> That's the nice. title of the book. Um, but if you, you know, they just look up Ian Cutler and find those books. Um, well, I just, you know, I just hope people enjoy them because I certainly enjoyed writing them. I'm not doing it for. I didn't. I don't write for notoriety or for money or anything. I don't. I'm, I've got a pension. I'm quite comfortably off now. And, just purely it's just a labor of love and it's just something i got obsessed with and fascinated with and
0: um yeah wonderful so well thank you so much for uh thank you so much for talking to me this is a great this is a great show all right that's it for today's episode thank you so much for joining us on the adventure and remember to check out our new course, The Magic of Tarot with Lon Milo Dequette. That's at tarot.magic.me, T-A-R-O-T dot M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. It's a comprehensive course that promises not just to educate, but to transform your life. Don't miss out on unlocking the mysteries of the universe. Sign up for The Magic of Tarot now and join the growing community of magicians finding joy and profound insight in the course. So until next time, hang in there, lots of love, and I will see
1: you soon.